this week on Dig we Me Out. Built the spiders, and we built the galaxies. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, we're back again with another episode thanks to our Dig Me Out Union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com. Jay, that's the place that you go to suggest an album or join the newsletter, the box newsletter that's delivered weekly. DMO Union? Oh, no. What are you talking about? What? I don't know. What the hell are you talking about? about? Digmeoutpodcast.com is where you go. Oh, you're talking about our website. Yeah, sorry. Well, I think we the feature so attraction there... We have so many websites to, to go to. I'm confused now. Yeah, I know. Or uh, The website is uh, where, you, where you can get the archive. Yes. Go up there, go up there into the search bar and there's some keywords and check out one of our 500 episodes. 498 episodes, Jay. 498. This is episode 499. I usually don't announce the episode numbers... Well, recently, because sometimes we record out of order of what we actually post. Spoiler alert. Sometimes things happen and, and we don't expect them to happen and then things get changed around. Like, you know, somebody calls and says, yo, Tim and Jay, it's uh, Eddie Vedder. I want to do an interview. We're like, sure, Eddie. <laughs> That's what happens. He calls because he's got our number. Anyway, this is 499, Jay, which means the next episode is 500. Uh, we have nothing planned for that. We're taking the week off. Everybody, uh, we're gonna we're just gonna put four minutes and thirty three seconds of blank uh, space into the feed for that week. That Enjoy. would be kind of perfect. And there'll be a hidden bonus track at the end. <laughs> just silence for uh, sixty minutes, and then some random noise, like room noise. Yep, me running my Roomba. <laughs> <laughs> that would be so nineties. But for this episode, Jay, it is a selection by one of our patrons. He is back from last week. That's, uh, that's how back he is. Welcome back to the show, Jeremy Amen. Jeremy, welcome. Thanks for having me again. again. Did you miss us? Yes, it's been, uh, it's been <laughs> a long, long, long while. Um, kind of like a Phil's break last time. It's been rough. I know, that's weird how that worked out. Totally uh, random that every, you, both you and Phil had a week of separation between your two visits. But hey, that's just how the, uh, the cookie crumbled in this case. So the last episode was the B-Sides of the 90s episode, which based on the comments at Instagram and some other places, people enjoyed uh, revisiting B-Sides. I know I did. Love listening to Montel Jordan acapella remixes. <laughs> and... Um, also joined us previously for Dada's American Highway Flower, albums of 1990 Roundtable, and the Sophomore Slump Reversed Roundtable. So this week is one of your picks. What's it going to be? What did you pick? What did you bring to us? And why did you pick it? Uh, so I'm bringing uh, Enthrall, the only album from Murray Attaway uh, as a solo artist. I guess, you know, we can get into the history of the band later, but... Uh, and the reason I picked it, I actually made a list of 
I don't know, probably 70 or 80 different albums and then just kind of whittled them down. And I was really looking for something that uh, wasn't too off the wall, was a little bit accessible, um, hopefully something that has at least a few tracks that that you all, you know, actually enjoyed. Um, especially if you're, if you're listening with headphones, I think you'll, you'll hear some stuff that you'll really appreciate. So I was just trying to go with something that wasn't going to be a total flop, but might also get some, some, uh, I, I felt like it was going to be a split in the voting when I picked it. And I, I was just kind of interested in that. I figured people are either going to say, Oh, we're the album or a decent single. Um, and so that's kind of what I was aiming for. Well, you might've gotten your wish based on what I saw before we started recording. Jay, were you familiar with uh, Mr. Attaway? No, not at all. So I, I was not familiar, and I'll be honest, the album cover threw me greatly because <laughs> um, as our new patron, Michelle Panel or Panel, uh, mentioned in the comments for this episode, this art could be a Merciful Fate King Diamond album cover. <laughs> not, was I ex- not what I was expecting sonically. Yeah. Yeah, it's terrifying. Yeah, um, very, very odd. Well, the other thing is, is, is if you went out and looked for this album because you heard a single off of it, it was also confusing the other way or, you know, in the opposite direction. Yeah. You know, because when I saw it, I was like, what? What is this? <laughs> it looks super, like, scary. You know, color palette wise, we're talking black, red, yellow. There's this ominous figure behind a child. There's some like maybe thorns. And, but then, so that it's kind of, you know, scarify are terrifying and scary, but um, it also just looks a little like local bandish. Mm-hmm. Like, just yeah. doesn't necessarily look like something DGC would have put out in 93. So there's that aspect of it too. Yeah. Especially the way the colors mixed and the, the name of the album with the thorns and it just, it looks, really yeah i mean it just looks like somebody asked their cousin who was pretty good with some photoshopping right. to, <laughs> to make an album cover for him yep. yeah if that said merciful fate across the top in that font instead of murray attaway <laughs> i would that would look correct but the fact that it says murray yeah. attaway is like what yeah it doesn't make it's it's completely uh wrong so maybe that's why uh, a lot of people don't know this record possibly um some other comments we got scott holgram said i haven't listened to this in a long time i got it because i liked the song on dgc rarities volume one of course we're all waiting for volume two um it always it's always (laughs) nice when somebody else picks one i was thinking of picking well there you go richard waterman what an album cover (laughs) it reminds me of end of days or the exorcist three it has that horror feel to it. <laughs> I would love End it as a poster. <laughs> I don't think my girlfriend would appreciate it much, though. As for the music, I have never heard this album, but I'm listening to it right now and like what I hear. Most more considered thoughts later. Michelle's right. It sounds nothing what the cover art looks like. I really liked most of this album. It had a cool atmosphere to it. There was only two or three songs I was not sold on. For me, it was a worthy album. At times, it sounded like early REM or pre-Throwing Copper Live. I especially like track four, Angel, Angels in the Trees. Next favorite track was number seven, Fall So Far. So we should get into a little history of the band here. History of the band. 
Jeremy. What do you know? What do you want to share with us regarding the history of Mr. Attaway? So um, he started out in uh, a band called Guadalcanal Diary, uh, which was an Athens, Georgia band. Um, so, you know, it's I don't know if, if Richard was aware of that when he made the comparison to early R.E.M., um, but they did drew, they did draw a lot of comparisons to REM early on because they uh, uh, they sung about unusual subject matter, um, not really any like ballads or love songs or songs about girls or you know it really wasn't what you would expect, especially in the early '80s um, from an aspiring kind of rock band, so to speak. And uh, I think they did four albums plus a live album. Um, and then the band broke up. I don't think it was acrimoniously, but they did break up, I think, in the late 80s. Then you get to uh, 1993, and um, he just put this album out. He actually had uh, another album that he was working on. I think he had like 20-something tracks, pretty much uh, at least good demos of them. And um, I think the album was going to be called Delirium. Uh but it it never got released because he just decided one day and, and there's actually I'll, I'll mention give more details about it but there's a podcast where he was interviewed about this and he he basically decided one day while having an interaction with his you know one or two year old daughter or whatever that he was just done doing music and he called his manager and just said hey get me out of my contract and uh so at that point they couldn't sell the album to anybody um, you know, nobody wanted to, to, to distribute it for an artist that wasn't going to tour. And, uh, so I think you might be able to find like, like a, a download of at least 11 tracks of it, but, uh, I haven't yet, but that's pretty much it. He's just, uh, stopped doing music for the most part and working in it like web design or something. And he just lives on a farm somewhere down in Georgia, I think. Hopefully he's not doing album cover design. okay good we need to talk about the players and everybody involved in this record because there are a lot of heavy hitters and it's kind of crazy the list of names involved with this record so let's start with um some some of the guests some of the guests let's just start with the guests amy mann is on backing vocals on at least one of the tracks, joined also by Jackson Brown on backing vocals. John Bryan plays guitar and keyboards and drums throughout the record. Nikki Hopkins, legendary keyboard player with the Rolling Stones, among many other, plays piano and organ throughout the record. Joined by uh, Steve Neve, Play on electric piano. Steve Neve is is the sound of the Elvis Costello and the, and the attractions. That organ, that's Steve Neve, that you know from all those early attractions. He also played, I think, with the specials, or Mad Madness, or the specials. I don't. One of the two. I I get them mixed up. On drums, Jim Keltner, the legendary Jim Keltner, Pat Mastelato, who was one of the drummers in King Crimson. All right, you got it so far? Okay, that's that's like the Benmont Tench plays organ on this record. Yes. It was recorded by Chris Lord Algie, one of the preeminent recording engineers. 
Mastered by Bob Ludwig. Again, another heavy hitter. And everybody who's involved in this record, there's like, for, for overdubs, there's like four different recording engineers. All of these guys have like a thousand credits to their name. Just an, an insane amount of, of talent that played on this record. One of the other dr- session drummers was a guy who played with like, you know, Billy Preston and um, all these, you know, amazing 1970s and 80s like jazz and and solo artists and also play with Chris Penn or Chris Penn, Michael Penn, which I think there's a connection between how Amy Mann ended up on this record um, because of the producer, Tony Berg, who also worked with Michael Penn and obviously Michael Penn was with Amy Mann. Are they still together? I don't know. But it's just, it's crazy. Uh, all of the folks, the talent in, involved in this record is just, it's cuckoo. I've yeah, never seen, I've never seen anything the, like uh, it. Even the, the producer plays a lot of stuff on, I think, all but four of the tracks. Tony Berg is, is all over it as well, which is just... I, I mean, it's just crazy. I, I mean, I was looking at the—I was just looking at the the, the history. I, I never really seen anything about Tony Berg, the the producer, before, but um, he has a very long list of of credits, and he's kind of all over the place too. Like right? He's, you know, not just yeah. It's, it's just really weird. The whole thing well, is—you just you just look at this and you think, how in the world did this not? There's some other. I mean, like marketing wise, like how did this not hit? better than it did and then also um apparently i think it was for this album the the record the the, the distributor gave away the first fifty thousand. so like if a if a if a store you know like if a media player or whatever whatever was there in 1993 placed an order for you know a thousand units they would go ahead and fulfill the order and then they would call them and just say hey by the way we're giving these to you for free we're also sending you some you know like an end cap display or this or that um, so yeah, I mean, the first 50,000 units, assuming it even sold that, uh, made the, the label, you know, no money, which is just crazy. That's crazy. Just a few other names that are on this record. Just uh, Steven souls. He's, he's on backing vocal on three different songs. He was in Bob Dylan's band in the seventies and he ha- he was in a, no- a number of his own bands, but he was, he was in he, Bob Dylan picked him to go on the road with him for many years in the seventies. Um, Robbie Blunt plays guitar on this record. Robbie Blunt was in Robert Plant's band in the 80s. Uh, percussion is Alex Acuna, who is like a legendary, uh, has over 700 credits of records he's played on. And they all ended up in the studio. <laughs> this Not at once, obviously. But um, like they brought in every person that they could. Dave Mansfield, who plays mandolin on... Uh, one of the tracks he was also played with Bob Dylan. It's just uh, it's it's crazy. They got guys who were in the strings who played strings on this record, like Sid Page, who played with Sly and the Family Stone, Patrick Warren, who plays Chamberlain on this record. He's played with a, a ton of people, Michael Penn and Chris Isaac, and actually played on Remy Zero's record. But you know, one of those session guys who's just like because he plays a Chamberlain, I guess. Uh, which is not a, you know, record or a, an instrument that everybody plays. But this Have is probably the, will travel. Yeah, exactly. This has probably got to be the most loaded album we have ever reviewed in terms of 
talent and and connections to so many other artists and it's and it's this guy who was in an underground jangle pop band from athens in the 1980s this uh this album so tim and i have toyed with the idea of uh, what would a tv show be like for dig me out and one of the concepts was basically like expand on like go out and actually like dig up the story of a record. And this record sounds like it would be perfect for that. <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. how the hell did this get made? Who was involved? Like what were the, you know, what were the expectations? How, how did the sessions go? Like, how does this happen? And then how is it not commercially successful and, or like even available on streaming anymore? One last thing, the guy who did the art, I know you want to know. <laughs> oh yeah. 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 That's- his name is Robert Fisher. He was the art director with Geffen Records. He's oh also goodness. responsible for the art for Slayer's Season in the Abyss. Seasons in the okay. Abyss. Danzig's Danzig 2. Nirvana's Nevermind. That's not bad. Urge Overkill's Saturation. Nirvana's In, Ut- in Utero. Uh, Beck's Mellow Gold. Oh. He was just... Uh, that guy was just on... Um... Dean Del Rey's podcast. He interviewed him. Oh, really? Oh, no, uh, no, no, no. I'm sorry. It was on uh, Final Emergency. Um, Robert Fisher? Yeah, because he's done all of the Nirvana stuff. Like, basically, he's art directed everything Nirvana did, and he was at DGC in the 90s. Yep. Wow. So he is responsible for this album cover. And his, I mean, his style is very, like, he did the DGC Raiders cover, which everybody knows, like that robot photo. Mm-hmm. Like, a lot of the iconic 90s stuff he did. Wait, which volume? <laughs> Three. <laughs> wow, I never would have guessed. Okay. See, I want to know the story of like, what was he thinking when he <laughs> did he listen to the music? What was were you on? And you the next next Slayer record? <laughs> yeah, it was, it was his fifth. He was going through his fifth divorce at the time. It was really rough. <laughs> Yeah, that's a bad trip, that album cover. All right, Jay, tell me one thing you liked about In Thrall by Murray Attaway. Well, the the album cover kind of sets the tone in that it, it keeps throwing your curls, you know? I think um, starting with the name and then the album cover, you have no idea what you're getting into. And the first track is, you know, pretty jangly sounding pop rock, maybe maybe go as far as pop, power pop-ish. Um, I would say it's like, in the smithereens kind of vein, mm-hmm. uh, not at all what I was expecting, <laughs> um, based on the visual and maybe even the name. starts like contorting as you go through the record there's definitely a lot of unexpected either instruments and or production uh choices things fading in and out quickly like 
panning extra layers here and there that kind of keep you on your toes. But there's also like from a songwriting standpoint and just overall like vibe, it starts to almost sound like a, a prog record um, in the vein of like Jethro Tull or even Tool, like vocally, like he sounds a lot like Maynard at times. He um, does. Like yeah. Allegory is the one that really kicked it off for me. It's like, holy shit, this guy sounds, this sounds like Tool. Like, what is going on on this record? <laughs> and then that, the, you know, that, that kind of tone comes back where it's, he gets in this, that, that same voice um, that Maynard uses and the music will be very like kind of atmospheric and, um, you know, pulled back a little bit and it loses that pop power, pop sharpness later in the record. Like you hear like the folk roots come out or folkish roots, but because of the way it's produced and maybe the players, it starts to take on like that Jethro tall kind of vibe where it's like, taking folk music, but like translating it through like high level musicianship and, you know, super sharp production and, you know, dynamic presentation. Like, so where I end up on this record is not at all where I started (laughs) as a listener. I think what's remarkable though, is, you know, the production, his voice and the focus, I think on his voice keeps it together so it doesn't feel like schizophrenic or incoherent um it sounds of the same album i think it's just um unexpected um you don't quite know where we're gonna go next you know your first couple times through the record so um i found that super interesting and unique um and that's probably the biggest thing that that stood out to me as a as is what i liked I totally had that same reaction when I heard when during the even song, there is such a Maynard sound to his voice and parts that it was startling to hear it. Yeah. Listen to the whispering in the empty 
there's a lot to like about this record in terms of the diversity from track to track. Some of it has, like you said, kind of this folky sound, but through filtered through some really expert players that kind of elevate it from just like a guy with an acoustic guitar. And then there's some power pop where you can hear the influence of like an Elvis Costello. And then there's stuff like Angels in the Trees that reminded me uh, of a band like the Levelers. I don't know if you remember them from the 90s. I believe I want to say they were Irish. They had this. uh, Well, they were English band, actually. They had a folk sound to their rock that evoked some, I don't know, just like Celtic sounds. I don't know if that's the right way to put it, but they just didn't sound like anybody else. Whether it was the intermingling of the acoustic and the the acoustic being like jangly, which you did not hear in like 1990s uh, Brit pop. The, you know, if there was acoustic, it was like in the vein of Wonderwall or something like that. It wasn't in like a mandolinish way uh, being played. This reminded me of 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 that kind of stuff where it was traditional, but not just American folk, but like European, like British folk. And and um, I don't have a strong background. I know there's a lot of really important folks from uh, you know like Fairport Convention and and other artists of that who are doing like traditional or, or British folk as opposed to American. And I, I heard little tinges of that. What Richard Waterman said about the REM. I, I mean, obviously there's a lot of like eighties jangle pop still in there um, that pokes through like on fall so far that to me kind of had that feel, even though it was a little bit, I don't know when I think of jangle pop, I think of it being a little like the guitar is a little more chorused out. You know what I mean? Like there's a little bit more bliss in it, whereas this seems like they they dialed that down and cleaned up the effect that would be um, present on the guitar, especially. I think what worked best overall was just his diversity between songs and, and his ability to like change it up just enough. And luckily he had an amazing supporting cast that could pretty much do anything that he clearly wanted to do with this record. Um, I still am like dumbfounded by the album cover in comparison to what the music sounds like, but there, I mean, there's a lot of references to religion, so maybe this is him getting some stuff out with regards to that. And maybe that makes sense. That yeah, way. That had crossed my mind as I, as I got into the record myself was the only other time I've seen record covers this dark and music, this light is Christian rock. <laughs> I'm like, and I'm like, am I listening to a Christian rock record here? What's going on? What did yeah, you yeah, get me into? Undercover or something. And I don't think it's a Christian rock record in in so much as I think it's a just dealing with religion and and I don't know the exactly so, what he's tackling, but just like the big sort of questions and that kind of stuff. So he. Um... I think his father passed away just a couple years before this, probably when he actually really started started working on it. And he's always been uh, he's he's been a deep reader. Like I mean, he, he just if you look at the lyrics from like the Guadalcanal Diary stuff, it's just it, it's obvious that he's very very literate. Like he 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 just you know is reading like uh, I don't know like Faulkner and 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 probably a lot of like 
I, I would imagine he's probably read the entire Bible multiple times, but I don't think that if you, if you hear him in interviews, if he is in any way deeply religious, he, his, his way of speaking does not reflect that at all. I mean, he is, he's dropping F-bombs and telling people to eat shit and just all sorts of stuff. I mean, he is, uh, and he also, when you listen to him talk, it's kind of like, uh, I'm trying to think of the, oh, I can't think of his name now, Leaves of Memory. Uh, when you interviewed um, about, I'm trying to, trying to remember the name John, of the band now, I'm drawing a blank. So yeah, John, 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 John Davis. Davis? Yeah. yeah. So when you hear him sing, and then you hear him speak, you're like, how is this the same person? Mm. Um, uh, that, that's like, when you listen to this guy, it's just like, I mean, he sounds like a, like a character out of like South Park or something. It's just so strange. Um, <laughs> but when, when I, anything that I heard, especially like, like allegory, like anything referencing God or anything like that, I honestly took it like, like the line, you know, grace of God is over us all. I, I, I took that as almost like a, like a kind of tongue in cheek or like maybe sarcastic delivery more than anything else. Like, like angels in the trees also, um, I, I think has that, that kind of approach. I don't think that he's necessarily endorsing, uh, you know, you know, Christianity or Christian themes. Um, I think he's just kind of exploring the, the philosophy that comes with uh, religious discussion. It's just funny that you should mention that because if you look at the one song that's on uh, Apple Music, uh, it, it actually describes it as I think Christian slash gospel. Um, and you know, I've heard some interviews with him, and he's definitely, I, if he's leaning that way, he's he's an unusual character because he he's, <laughs> the things that he says uh, don't make him sound like that at all. So it's kind of interesting. I was I was hoping you would mention the. The uh, the religious aspect of it though, because it's it it's just kind of funny how he's been billed on Apple Music for one song. <laughs> yeah, I I don't know that gospel necessarily works very well. I don't I don't hear that. I mean, there's some organ on here, but not in that way that I think of it. But I think <laughs> it ties in then somewhat to the album cover, as poorly as that album cover represents what the music is. It does sort of weirdly makes sense this religious iconography icon what's the word i want to say Icon- iconography what yes are you for? that's the word <laughs> i couldn't i couldn't get it out of my mouth just okay. make something up iconography. iconography iconography thank you anytime so what, what works best for you on this record jeremy what do you like bo- most about it well, I, I definitely like his voice. I mean, for it is something where I could understand some people just not 
you know, because of the tone of his voice, just be like, okay, I'm done with this after three, after three tracks, just be like, ah, it's too nasally. I don't like it. I'm done with it. Um, but I, I really like his voice. Um, I think the, the, the harmonies are pretty amazing, especially that, that Jackson Brown harmony, which, uh, um, on that, that the, the hustle podcast, not the, I think there's some other podcasts called the hustle, but this one I think is just on Podbean. Uh, he, he actually talks about how that, happened like he was actually in the studio that i think with jackson brown studio and uh jackson basically offered to to help and um and did that part it's kind of an amusing story but um it's better if you just listen to the, to the what, but, what, yeah, song, what song is that on uh, angels in the trees okay um and then uh and then just the the just kind of the the, the textures like the way things are layered and just every once in a while, there's like a, like right at the beginning, he he sings like the first line, and then there's this this the way the chord just comes in that that yeah. uh, you know like like upstrum chord or whatever. It's just it just gave me chills like the first time that I heard it. And I, I got the album because I for Under Jets that was the only song I had heard on it. So I was already really excited to hear how different the first track was compared to the single that I was hearing. Um, but yeah, just just the the vocal harmonies, the vocals themselves the the textures there's some kind of uh like cheesy keyboard stuff that pops up here and there but um if you listen to it on headphones there's even some uh um like brass like saxophone stuff it's, it's actually keyboard but but it sounds really cool um uh it has almost like a uh a rocket from the crypt mix to it just a little mm. bit more subtle um uh but yeah those are, those are probably the things that stand out to me jay what doesn't work for you on this record? I think when the record starts, I, I feel like I'm in store for um, a sophisticated pop-up record, right? I, I expect to to get, you know, hooks and lots of great melodies, um, which I think the first song, No Tears Tonight, starts to tee up for you. As the record goes on, that's not necessarily maybe the, the goal. Um, so the songs get a little bit more moody, and the hooks are a little bit more spare. They're harder to find. So I'll struggle with that a little bit, just trying to figure out, like, ultimately, the twists and turns are fun, and there's a lot here to keep you engaged and listening and digging into it. But I also was a little lost in, like, what's the identity here? Like, are these pop songs, and are they all produced in a way that, like, makes that come across as well as they possibly could. Or I think it's sometimes some of the material sounds like maybe overproduced or overdone um, mm-hmm. and kind of uh, what's a good example. Um, False so far might be a good example of you know, at the core that almost sounds like uh, maybe like summertime blues or something. Like it's a fairly straightforward pop rock song, I think acoustically and probably vocally, but like it's done with this really heavy piano, which is really different like not what you would expect and just overall it's like more layered and there's a lot of cool parts it's just i'm sometimes i'm wondering like do all of these parts and all of these things best serve the song or are they actually overshadowing the song yeah I, i just found myself like kind of going back and forth like struggling a little bit like you know what's the hook of the song you know if it's a pop pop song where's the 
what's the big chorus I'm to remember or what's the hooky part and sometimes that's not easy to find. I struggled with the production a little bit as well because when it opens up, it's a you know like you said it's a really good opener, and I was getting a Elvis Costello vibe, and I love Elvis Costello, uh, unapologetically, even the the weird records that he does, like with Burt Backrack and stuff, and it it moved away in terms of production into sounding like Bruce Hornsby. Mm. this like real like they were trying to make like a really radio adult contemporary sounding record in terms of the production but that's not what the songs are in a lot of cases these are much (laughs) more sophisticated and subtle songs there's no you know mandolin rain or whatever on this record you know nothing is that simple but that's what the record sounded like to me with all this like clean, clean, clean sounds. And I, you know, I just needed like a little rougher edge, I think, to some of this stuff just to give it a little more life. It just felt like a little flat to me. And it, it, I think it sounds like an 80s record that came out in the early 90s is what it come, what, which, which we've run into before. I don't know if that's the same way that you hear it jay but that's kind of what i hear yeah um a little bit it doesn't suffer from the the bad reverb effect no (laughs) that i think we often associate with like late 80s early 90s it does suffer maybe now that i know it, it may suffer a little bit just from a lot of studio players you know just a lot of like overdubbing and kind of losing and you know expertly engineered like there's not a whole lot here to critique from a production engineering standpoint, just sonically. But to your point, like I think some of these songs would have benefited from just a, a grittier, more straightforward, almost band approach, you know, just pick three or four guys, have them work out the song and like cut it that way and like min- minimize some of the overdubbing um, and guest parts and pieces and, sections um i'd be curious to, to see what some of that would come across as it, it would be a little less like studio indulgent yeah yeah i just uh it, it just it kept me at a distance from a production standpoint i did notice while i was you know doing some research on the singles his a and r guy is listed um his a and r guy was tom Zudat or Zuat? Zutat. Zutat? Zutat. Yeah. Uh, who was the guy who signed Guns N' Roses? Yep. Um, also signed Motley Crue. Wow. Yep. Just an, <laughs> another weird name connected to this uh, record. So 
Jeremy, is there anything that doesn't work for you on this record? To be fair, there are times when when I'll think, oh, I'm going to get this out and listen to it. Because, I mean, I, I generally don't listen to single songs. I like to listen to an entire album. And there are times where I'll get it out and I'll get uh, probably get to probably fall so far. It's probably where I'll get and, you know, something else will come out and come up and I'll just stop. And then I won't usually if I stop listening to an album, I'll go back to it and finish it. If something broke it up, like if I was on a short road, short, you know, commute or something like that. Um, but I mean, I, I definitely can pick out like like fall so far has that kind of feels like it's something from like a Charlie Brown episode. And uh, and, and there's this like really horrible transition at the end, in my opinion, like like it feels like like they kind of take the song in this one direction and then they're just like, Oh, what do we do? Oh, I don't know. Let's just let the drums go for a little bit. And it's just, just musically. I just think it's really a a poor uh, segue into the final part of the song. Um, So, I mean, it's kind of fun to listen to. Like it it comes up and I'm like, Oh, this is, you know, this is kind of a, um, it's obviously the first song of the B side. Uh, of of the cassette or the or you know the album, I'm pretty certain because I had it on cassette first. So I mean, it sounds like it. It sounds like they they kind of faded out at the end of the A side, and then they they come up with that. Um, I thought that was. I mean, I, if it wasn't on the album, I don't know if it would really if I would miss it. And then living in another time, I think also is 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 kind of a weak track. I mean, it's it's okay. It's just not. I don't know. I, I think if you if you took those two tracks off, I, I would probably be more inclined to listen to it from beginning beginning to end. Um, you know, picking up where I left off, uh, and I generally do anyway. But but if I had to pick a couple of tracks that I'm not a big fan of, those would probably be it. Other than that, I feel like it's it's pretty solid. A um, couple weird keyboard sounds that maybe are pretty dated now, but uh, I, I still enjoy it from beginning to end. I'm looking at this record that comes out in 1993 with this album cover, and I'm thinking, how does this get any play anywhere? We wouldn't even play this at the radio station, I don't think. I mean, it's a little bit yeah, before no. when we actually... I, I didn't start like really working there until 94, and Jay didn't start there until, what, like 96, 95? Yeah, but could some of this be like uh, in the, I don't know, that like Rembrandt space? <laughs> Toad the wet sprocket space, you know, from a radio standpoint, put the, put the album cover aside, but like sonically aren't, isn't, uh, isn't some of this record in that, in that company. Well, maybe that's kind of the problem though, is, is, you know, were they, were they marketed the same way as a band like that? You know, you right. like, like down here in the, in the greater Cincinnati area, you'd hear like a, a rem, you know, a, uh, what was that first big hit from the Rembrandt? Was it, uh, the way it is baby or something like that? Mm-hmm. They would, you would hear that on like Q102 or like one of the total like pop stations. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas um, the only place I ever heard anything from this, it was it was under Jets, and they played it a lot on 97X when this came out. Um, and probably for a year or two after it came out, you would still hear that pop up every once in a while. Um, but that was the only song I heard from it on the radio, and that was what made me go buy it. Yeah, and that song sounds like uh, to me, it's in the REM guided vibe of voices kind of space which is interesting that that's the song that station played because i could see that fitting but like uh was it living in another time i mean that's that is like adult contemporary pop I, I know i can't hide it 
tears tonight i could see you know in that in that spectrum maybe that's part of the problem here <laughs> it's like we, if you're gonna if you're gonna try if you're gonna make a push i think commercially to, to be in that space like you need to have a record that sounds consistently like that probably too and doesn't have a terrifying album cover <laughs> well and then there's also the uh the the, the potential you know how many people listen to the first you know first few tracks on this album and said i i think this actually is a you know a christian artist mm. and you know maybe if they if they weren't really reading into it maybe they just felt like oh i'm you know i'm not really into this it's the early 90s you know we're we're supposed to be uh you know kind of going away from from the 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 christian rock inclination of the end of the 80s you know maybe yeah. somebody just thought oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not really interested in this and just turned it off it would have been really uh, interesting if this was produced and performed more like a REM record of that time. You know, from a material standpoint, I'm wondering how different this would be if it had that more band organic oriented kind of approach to the record. Yeah, like imagine if it had the like the out of time production. Yeah, yeah, which is which is lush, but it's it's not overindulgent. You still, you know, you could still imagine that it's, you know, the same four guys pretty much doing everything with a couple guest vocal appearances. I'm guessing that the most people who heard this record, aside from all those end caps, when they dumped him into the the used bin to get rid of him later. um, Imagine this album cover cover on an end cap and you're walking by like, (laughs) oh, (laughs) what's what's out now? Like, oh, my God, what is this? Exactly. You know, there's some dude who was like into Slayer and he was like, oh, dude, right. this looks. <laughs> but it's got to be the ref, the, the rarities, the DGC rarities, because it's the track Allegory is one of the later tracks on that record. But if you look at what's on that record, Urge Overkill, Nirvana, Weezer, Sonic Youth, Beck, Counting Crows, Posies, like those are all bands along with Sloan, Hole, That Dog that are selling records in 1993-94, I would imagine that this helped move a few records for him because people went... For the people who at least liked Allegory, they went, oh, I'm going to go track that record down. And by since that record... The Rarities came out actually a year later in 94, there's a chance that some of those made it to the cutout bin, you know, with the hole punch by that point of those 50,000 copies. So I'd really be interested to know how many copies actually sold of this record. Do you know, Jeremy? Any idea? Yeah, no idea. I, and actually, um, I mean, I originally bought it new on cassette, but this CD that I'm looking at now has a hole in the, uh, mm-hmm. in the uh, barcode on it. Yep. I, would bet there's, I would bet it sold less than 100,000, probably less than 50,000. Which would be, if it was less than 50,000, I mean... Man, the DGC—they really ate it on that. That's pretty bad. Well, but you know, they—they. This is the classic case of we've got 
a, a couple million to play with because of Nirvana, because of Weezer, because of Sonic Youth at this point, Counting Crows, we can take that money and and take a shot on a guy like Murray Attaway and send out 50,000 promo copies and see if it hits. You know, because if they send out 50,000 and he sells a million copies, great. But it only costs them, you know, probably less than 50 cents to make each of those promo CDs. So back in 1993 so probably wasn't a bad promotional i mean to be honest if you were a a musician a you know from a a fairly obscure 80s band and the label said we're going to do a big push fifty thousand promo copies around the country you'd probably be happy with that it means they're actually you know trying to get your record out and played at stations and into stores and and whatnot at least that would be my thought, unless it's not that positive, and they're just dumping them. Yeah, you never know. and I mean, I guess the, I guess it would be different if, if he had fronted a band that had you know a little bit more success in the eighties. I mean, I, when I when I heard a single, I mean, I, I I had heard of Guadalcanal Diary. I had heard a couple of songs that I might recognize, but. Not enough that I had said, "Oh, this is the guy that sang for that band." Um, you know, it's not a very recognizable name. Uh, it, it's just really strange how his his career went. Uh, I mean, they, they when they were in the band originally, they basically were telling labels that were trying to to uh, to woo them. You know, just telling them to, to you know go screw themselves um, because they wanted to do what they wanted to do. They they didn't want to have a, a label try and push them in a different direction. And then they kind of discovered after the fact that there were bands that, that were able to do that, like R.E.M. And uh, I don't think they, I, I guess they eventually got distributed. They eventually got distributed by um, a major label, I think. But just nothing really ever came of that. Uh, they were so stubborn about how they were marketed back in the 80s, I think. And that prevented him from being really a recognizable figure when he put out this solo album. And I I don't know. I don't know how they could have thought it was going to sell without massive promotion. Yeah, I just I sent uh, you guys the album, the cover for the single under Jets, which was just a promo single that went out. That is a far superior album cover, as uninteresting as it is, than the actual album cover. Uh, is that Murray- kind of like like a Top Gun font there? Or- I don't know. Murray Attaway looks like the substitute teacher on an episode of Head of the Class. Like, uh, Howard Hespin's out for the day, and, uh, and Murray Attaway is, is the sub. Head of the Class, wow. So, how, we, how are we rating this thing? How are we rating this album, Jay? I'll tell you what, the, what our folks at Patreon said in just a moment. What do you say, Jay? Were the album better EP or decent single? I say were the album. Uh, I think the second half is not as strong as the first. The material I like there is spottier. Even a song like My Book. Um, I, I think the chorus is really strong. I think that guitar part in the chorus is amazing. Uh, the vo- verses, I want to break the drummer's hands. Like it's just like <laughs> relentless pounding drums, which I just it's like, oh my gosh, stop. I think Fall So Far and August Rain are 
dull spots in the record, but I think it's, you know, ambitious, unique. I think it's a great headphone listen. Like Jeremy said, um, that you will get a ton of, um, layers and just, it's just a lot of fun uh, from that aspect. Um, so, and I think it holds together cohesively as a record. Um, even though it's a little, you know, twists and turns, I think for the most part, he holds it together with his personality and lyrics and vocals. So I think it works as an album. I don't know that cutting songs here, it's not cutting songs here and there. It doesn't make a difference to me on this one. I mean, usually it's like, yeah, you could, you know, pull these four really strong songs. That would be great. I, I don't really think that makes a difference. It's either you're, I think all in on this and you'll enjoy the whole thing either from a curiosity standpoint or just generally love, you know, the songs um, or it's not your thing. And you'll know basically I think when you hear his voice <laughs> on track one, uh, whether you want to take the ride or not. Well, I'm going to disagree with you because I'm going to say a better EP. I, I don't, I think that there are a number of songs that are fatty that need a little trimming on this record. Um, it could be a lot tighter and in terms of what I would actually want to listen to over again, I would go with tracks. I would go with No Tears Tonight, Under Jets, Angels in the Trees, Walpurgis Night, and that might be it. That That's my EP. So I just, I think I was expect after that opening track, I think I was expecting a little bit more in the, like you said that, the melodies start to get a little softer not they're not they don't aren't as present and i kind of needed that going throughout the rest of the record i think there's some interesting stuff going on and it'll appeal to folks who are into the jangle pop and and some of the i don't know if you whatever was going on in athens in the in the 80s with rem and a number of the other bands uh but it kind of didn't live up to what I was hoping it was going to be at the beginning. So I'm at an EP with this. Jeremy, where do you land? Uh, probably a decent single. No, I'm joking. <laughs> um, nice uh, try. So, so here's the thing. I, I have a, it's, my memory's kind of fuzzy because I'm so old. But um, uh, I remember when I first got, I had this on cassette for a long time before I bought it on CD. So that kind of tells me that I got it for one song. I kept it because there was more than one song on it I really enjoyed. Um, and I would go back and I would listen to the cassette every once in a while, or I, I think I eventually, oh, no, no, I think, I think I just had that. I just had it in my cassettes and didn't get it on CD for a really long time. And then when I did, um, and I went back, I went and just listened to all, you know, 11 tracks or whatever um, from front to back. There were the there were the you know four or five songs that I really liked and really recognized, and then there was the other stuff that I had originally seen as just kind of like um, filler, or you know just just stuff that kind of steered away from how I felt the album should go. But I, I find I'm not going to say it's like an acquired taste. I think it's more like I'm, I was comfortable with those songs. I didn't really enjoy them because of just some of this this the the, the strange way that the that the album was put together, but listening to it you know over the past 10 years I, I really even the songs that i said i could do without you know you know if we cut off uh fall so far and uh living in another time i 
I, I mean, I still like those songs. I mean, I'll still sing along with those songs. I just, I, I find some faults with them and, and I, I wouldn't be bothered if they were gone, but I, I think it's a solid album. Um, I just, I think for people that listen to it, that only hear, you know, like yourself, if you only hear, you know, five songs that you would think that you would go back to, give it a little while, come back to it and, and listen to it from beginning to end again. Uh, once you're comfortable, once you, you, you know, those five, you know, well enough and come back and listen to it. And it, it, it kind of grows on you. Um, at least I think so anyway. Uh, I definitely didn't give it much of a chance when I had it on cassette, um, but kind of kept it as a reminder to go back to it at some point, and I was happy I did. All right. Do you want to know what happened at uh, Patreon? Or did you peek already? Uh, I, I peeked. I peeked okay. Already. Well, for our listeners, 60% were the album, 40% decent sing- decent single. Uh Nobody agreed with me that it should that about uh, better EP. They agree with me. When are you gonna learn, Tim? Never. I said you're either in on this record or you're not. Like from this from track one, you're like, oh, okay, let's see where we go with this, and then it you bought in, or it's like, no, no, thanks. You just have to be have to have um, you have to be brave enough to say it's a single. Oh. Brave. <laughs> oh. Huh. Yeah, that's interesting. All right then. Well, I'm sticking with my uh my selection. And uh Jeremy, thank you for Great. bringing this to us. This was on somebody else's radar. You beat him to it. We got to talk about this record. Fascinating record in terms of not just the music, but also the whole history of of this release and everybody who played on it and if we ever turn dig me out into a tv show this will be one of our featured episodes that Definitely. five people will watch <laughs> hey, hey man if it's um, a good story so so i have a, a, a i had i'd written something down about this and i don't know if you guys i think from when you discovered the grays uh you probably just got it on streaming at that point Right. Wasn't wasn't the Grays was kind of a, a, a discovery for you from the show. Is that correct? Or were either one of you familiar with them before the I show? I think Jay was familiar. I was familiar. I don't know if I had spent a ton of time with the record. But you did have it, right? Yeah. Had, like, the CD. So, yeah, I think so. So in the in the liner notes, um, and I could be mistaken, but uh, um, I think so each each person in the band in the grays had kind of their, their thanks to panel. Um, and I think John Bryan's was, it was, it had a, it was really just kind of like scrawled out, um, just like a list of names. And then at the very bottom, I, I swear, I think it says like by Murray, like B Y E Murray, like, and that, I think that album came out in 94. So, um, Maybe he was, maybe he thought that Grace was where, he, maybe he thought that Murray Attaway was going to be like his kind of steady job at that time. Hmm. And, uh, and then the Grays came along. And I mean, honestly, if I was in the studio with the Grays and made that album, I would be hoping that that was, you know, going to be what I was going to be doing for the rest of my life. But unfortunately it wasn't, but I, I, I could be wrong, but I feel like, uh, just a little bit of trivia there. I, I feel like, uh, um, I saw that in the liner notes for the Grays. I just wasn't sure if, if either hmm. of you look at liner notes the way that I used to. I don't have the CD, so 
Hmm. I can hear the John Bryan. I, I, you know, you can definitely hear like that kind of thing going on, um, on the record. So interesting overlap. I will try to track that down. I was looking on Discogs to see if they have all the liner notes printed so we could see that, but it doesn't actually list all the liner notes. It just has the like front cover and back cover. Damn you. I have it here somewhere. I just, I'm too lazy to go get it. Well, what oh. you can do is when you find it, post a picture to our discord channel and <laughs> we can discuss it as we do many things over on our various channels within our channel. <laughs> I guess. Fervor. New releases, documentaries, concerts, uh, what we're listening to, all kinds of fun things. If you're a member of our Patreon community, you can join us there. And you can, I believe you can listen to our live uh, broadcasts when we do them from our uh, Discord channel. And, uh, and how do I become a member again? DMOUnion.com. Nice. Oh. <laughs> or dig little, me out, Union. little secret little secret invite yeah i'm just i'm selling this like the uh like the compilation album i know in the <laughs> freedom rock it also has songs like sitting on the dock of the bay <laughs> and proud mary oh remember when those are, are those still a thing those can't be a thing anymore right i mean everybody's on spotify there's not like late night shows for you know get try to get old people to buy Maybe collection CDs. Oh, there's got to be. Like, do you think the time life stuff just went away? Like, no, mm-hmm. they just advertise it to 80 year olds. <laughs> no, no, no. But that's a good reminder that when you join us at Patreon or, uh, you know, you can sign up for our box newsletter and you get new reviews each week. They get posted at uh, Patreon and also via our newsletter. And uh, we do a couple of uh, reviews of new albums or books or movies relevant to 80s or 90s uh, dig-me-out material. Um, We've done, uh, I think, about averaging about two a week of new records. I'm hoping also to add some books here in the future. My my book reading is slow, so I apologize. And uh, if you, of course, if you have something that you want to share, as far as a record, you can make a suggestion at digmeoutpodcast.com, suggest an album, and we'll throw it in the hopper, and it can get voted on at Patreon. Um, and lastly, feel free to vote, or, or not vote, or rate us over at Apple Podcasts. Jay, is, it, is the top rating four stars or five stars? Five stars. Okay. So let's so do So if you're that. not going to give us four and a half, don't bother. Right. <laughs> And if you but do give us four and a up. half, what what did we do to lose the half, really? I know, I know. I mean, what more can we do? I think you We're said just... something, uh, did you disparage the Swedes? Why would we disparage Never. the Swedes? We love their Never. action rock. <laughs> Never. I love the Swedes. Yeah, yeah, ding dong. <laughs> ding dong. <laughs> uh, the anthem of 2020. All right. Jeremy, thanks for coming back. Much appreciated. They're from Iceland, though. Oh, that's right. <laughs> now the Swedes are pissed. No, we just Iceland. Darn it. <laughs> okay. Way to go. All right. 
I'm going to wrap this up. For Jay, I'm Tim. We're out. We'll be back next week with episode 500. Dig me out. Thoroughly in the cloud. Conjure up visions of power and romance and destiny changed in the twinkle of light.